Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Eric Karpolis and host Michael Lerner as they discuss the life of the Polish painter and writer, Joseph Czapski. Eric Karpolis, welcome back to the new school. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Um, Eric, uh, you are both a painter and a writer. Um, and um, your website has some beautiful language about your work. Um, at the intersection of painting and writing, Eric Karpolis observes and describes the relationship between the visual and the verbal. His book, Paintings and Proust, appeared in 2008 and was translated into several languages. Another painter and writer, Joseph Chapsky, inspired a trio of books, Lost Time, a series of lectures that uh, Chapsky did in a Soviet prison camp and that you translated, um, Almost Nothing, The 20th Century Art and Life of Joseph Chapsky, and An Apprenticeship of Looking, uh, or Joseph Chapsky, An Apprenticeship of Looking, which is due out from Thames and Hudson in October, and which will be a large format art book of how many uh, plates, did you say? Uh, it's about 120 paintings, mm -hmm. about uh, 300 plates, mm -hmm. 272 pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Karpolis is the translator of Proust's Overcoat from the Italian and Chopsky's Lost Time Lectures on Proust, Proust in a Soviet Camp from the French. I, I was trying to remember who wrote Proust's Overcoat. That's an oversight on my part that's uh, intentional. Oh, okay. Uh, she's an Italian woman named Lorenzo Faschini, okay. who was the most difficult person I've ever worked with in my life. Okay. <laughs> and that's saying something, folks. <laughs> and do you want that kept in the uh, transcript or not? I have nothing, nothing to, to hide. Okay, good. All right. If she sees it in Italy, I'll be happy to know that she has seen it. <laughs> Very good, so noted. A fellow of the, how am I pronounced? Czeslav Miłosz. Czeslav Miłosz Institute at Claremont College. Uh, Eric Karpolitz has given the Eamon Carter Lecture on the Arts at Harry Ransom Center in Austin, worked as a volunteer ambulance driver. Where was that? Back in, in back east where we were. Oh, good. Spoken on Proust at Berkeley and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts walked from Bath to Oxford, interviewed composer-lyricist Stephen Sondheim on stage, and collaborated on a book of mathematical questions and Hebrew references used as a prop in a film by the Cohen brothers. Mm -hmm. Karpolis studied at the Art Students League of New York as a boy and was awarded a residency at the Cité des Arts in Paris as a young man a voracious reader whose idea of hell is being on public transport without a book. Yes. He likes to cook, or perhaps more tellingly, he likes to eat. <laughs> he once had tea with Indira Gandhi and has lived with the same man, Michael Sell, who's here, for 40 years. 
Karpelitz painted his sanctuary, a 30 by 50 foot self-contained painted meditation space dedicated to the HIV AIDS community at a time when civic and spiritual institutions refused to extend the use of their facilities to those dying of the disease. Three-month installations were presented in various urban centers across the United States. <coughs> Sanctuary's final venue was Grand Central Terminal in New York. Carpolis is the painter of the Mary and Lawrence Rockefeller Chapel of Hope and Remembrance, commissioned by the Healthcare Chaplaincy, an organization representing more than 30 different faith traditions. So I wanted to read all of that simply to give our listeners and viewers um, who don't know you, yeah. as well as uh, the Bolinas and West community, uh, community know you, just a sense of, of who you are on paper, at least, uh -huh. where this yeah. comes from. So who was Joseph Chopsky? Chopsky was a figure who lived, he was born in 1896, and he died in 1993, so essentially lived the entire 20th century. He's a complex figure. Um, he was born into an aristocratic family. His mother was a Habsburg princess. His father was a Polish count. He was born a count, um, and yet um, because of that, uh, background, he was an enormously cosmopolitan spirited being. So he did not just see himself as one thing, but many things. He grew up in a household. He had six brothers and sisters. They had um, Italian governesses. They had French tutors. They had German music teachers, a life of great privilege, but very broad in those days in the early 20th century in the part of Poland where he lived, that was then part of the Tsarist Russia empire. Poland, very quickly, you, when you ask a question about Huchapsky is you go back into history, which was part of my, the appeal for me of Huchapsky was because it was not known to me. That Poland from uh, the mid 17th century had been partitioned in, among three empires, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Tsarist Russia Empire, and the Prussian Empire. In 1918, at the end of the First War, those empires ceased to exist, and Poland became a, the Second Republic of Poland was founded in 1918. It lasted approximately 21 years, because in 1939, the Russians and the Germans invaded and took over once again. So we're talking about um, a, a childhood in which um, he went from being enormously privileged to uh, after the Treaty of Versailles, the Treaty of Riga, following the First World War, Russia, Soviet Russia at that point, took over the lands where his family estates and fortune were. So he went from being very privileged to being penniless. The family, you know, really lost everything. That didn't mean that they suffered uh, financial hardbacks. There, were, there, were, there was family all over Europe who helped support them. But essentially, his, his going from having been somebody who it was understood would inherit great fortune went to somebody who had nothing, really, which was fine with him. He was truly a bohemian. He had very little attachment to material wealth. Um, 
and um, he was uh, he was somebody who was deeply religious in his own way, a Catholic. Um, he was extremely um, intelligent. The upper class Polish society of intellectuals is probably the most refined um, group of, of spirits that I've really come across that I, I never knew. There are great poets I'd never heard of. There's a big name of Herbert, Czesław Miłosz, um, any number of, uh, 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 of writers, of essayists, of uh, novelists. The written word was one of the Poles' great contributions to 20th century European literature, which we really don't know. Uh, we know Chopin, for instance. We know uh, some of the music that's come out of Poland, but not all of it. Um, and uh, the one thing that Poland is not famous for, and rightly so, I think, is the visual arts. They have a very uh, conservative and um, almost mediocre level of accomplishment in painting and sculpture, uh, mostly because it's entirely indebted to historical and religious narrative, so that you have the same scenes that are being painted over and over again, kind of ad nauseum, uh, very modest, you know, in Italian Renaissance or uh, even Northern Neanderthalish, you have a sense of the beauty of the flesh of the figures. The Poles have very, they're very Catholic in that way. They're, I think, hugely embarrassed by flesh. Uh, and it, it doesn't come across in the pictures, the warmth of the, of the human form. Um, so here I am giving a lecture. But no, no, it's fine. <laughs> We're with you. We're with you. So, so Chapsky was, um, this is the world into which he was, he was born. Um, he, there, there are several ways of telling his stories with uh, an overview of the structure of his military experiences, of his aesthetic development, of his sentimental education. Um, so it's, uh, there are a lot of ways to, to, to talk about him. Um, but he decided uh, in the early, I would say in early 1920, to become a painter. He had studied, in, he had been a, a young man in Russia, in St. Petersburg, very, very influenced by Russian music and Russian literature, and he then was gonna be a pianist. He practiced four or five hours a day for 10 or 12 years. Um, music was very important to him, and I think the decision to become a painter was the realization that he was not good enough to be a concert pianist. He knew Arthur Rubinstein as a child. I mean, he had heard Heifetz play. He, um, the great um, Paderewski, who was a Polish musician and nobleman, uh, was known to the family. Uh, they would go three hours when he would come visit friends nearby where the family estate was. He would go and listen to Paderewski play. So music was the initial impulse creatively, and then after the First World War, painting became his passion. Mm. And so he went and studied, um, and that eventually took him to Paris in the 20s. Uh, um, and... Then fast forward to the Second World War, he, the whole decade of the 40s, he was not able to paint. And then in 1949, 1950, he began seriously having a studio life, having a practice, um, getting up every morning and, and working in paint and in, in, in uh, different media. Uh, and he would um, 
do that from 1950 until he really died in 1993, ending at about 1990 when his vision became so bad that he could no longer see. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) What drew you to Chapsky? Um, Maybe I'll read the opening of my book, which actually uh, tells that story. My first exposure to the life and work of Joseph Chapsky came about altogether unexpectedly. One June day, I had never heard of him. The next day, I was hooked. Through the generous impulse of an old friend who likes to feed my appetite for critical thinking, I received in the mail one morning from Paris a slim French volume on the subject of Marcel Proust. The author's name, Joseph Chapsky, was not familiar to me. What happened after I opened the package, I hardly remember. Like a creature burrowing in its natural habitat, I sank deep into a chair and started to read right away. I do recall trying to force myself to stop at a certain point, thinking I might sustain the small the pleasure of reading over the course of a few days rather than exhaust it all in one sitting. But instead, I carried on, smiling and nodding, in a state of contentment. Taking in the last words of the final paragraph, I looked up reluctantly, as after a curtain falls on an engrossing performance one hoped would never end. I returned to the room I had not left, only to discover a luminous day had long since faded to dusk. The twilight suspended me in its threshold between day and night, much as my consciousness was suspended between Chapsky's world and my own. I was grateful for the book's serendipitous appearance in my life. Attuned to the sublimity of first readings, which can only happen once, I couldn't shake the feeling that the book, having turned up, was not an accident, that it had arrived carrying some kind of challenge, not from my friend who had sent the book, but rather, strangely, from the author, a painter like me. I felt this challenge on a visceral level, and it unsettled me. In an essay dedicated to Chapsky, the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert describes an encounter with an enigmatic work of art, capturing perfectly my own frame of mind. And this is Herbert. I understood immediately, though it is hard to explain rationally, something very important had just happened, something far more important than an accidental encounter. How to describe this inner state? A suddenly awakened intense curiosity sharp concentration with the senses alarmed, hope for an adventure, and consent to be dazzled. Mm -hmm. I experienced an almost physical sensation as if someone had called me, summoned me. Hmm. And on that note of uh, a sense that you'd been summoned, um, you and I have been friends for, what, a decade or more? Something like that. Um, and we take walks together. That's our primary form of exchange. Um, and you know that I have a more or less mystical, spiritual orientation toward the world, and I know that you have a... Uh, our last walk, you, did you say something like somewhere between existentialist and nihilist was the, the phrase? <laughs> Uh, in response to your question, yeah, yeah, having yeah, to put it in yeah, terms yeah, where I would be, yeah, yes. Yeah. 
But here's my question, because, and, and let me say that for me, and you, I think you know this about me, I don't privilege a mystical or spiritual perspective over an existentialist or nihilist mm -hmm. perspective. In other words, to me, they're all different uh, perspectives from which one can view the world and the human condition. And what matters is not which label or perspective you uh, subscribe to, but rather the depth and beauty of whatever perspective one takes. So that that's the... But the where I go from this is there's one other place where you have a similar uh, uh, experience of kind of uncanny connection, which I'll ask you to reference. Uh, but what I want to know is how in your existentialist to nihilist worldview you hold synergies like the sense of being called by the author or the sense that you have when you see the bookstore in another episode or see the gallery in another episode. How do you explain to yourself these uncanny experiences from an existential nihilist perspective? Well, um, I think the mystical approach and the existential nihilist are not exclusive. There's Probably. an awful lot of overlap. Right. Um, it's a question more perhaps about the, um, the structural overview of, of what is included in, in, in each of those. Mm. But I would say um, when something like this happens to me, I feel like, well, there goes existentialism out the window. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't need to call myself that. Okay. Um, but it also proves that there are so many ways of being open. And this is one also in re response to the question about um, my interest in Chopsky. Um, anything goes. I mean, he mm. was open to anything that came his mm. way. And it, that quality of being open to experience is something that I think that I have also. Something comes along and I, you know, uh, I pursue it. it. I'm open to it. Mm. I have the luxury of not having... Um, to structure my life so that, you know, I have to go to a job or that, um, you know, I have to provide for a family. So I've been very lucky to be able to follow my impulses mm. and I'm very open to things that, that come my way. Mm. I mean, Commonweal, mm. you know, Bolinas, all mm. of that is the kind of thing that, um, who knew? Mm. So who knew it can be both mystical and existential yeah. and even uh, nihilist, I think. You know, who knew? Nobody knew. That's the answer. Um, you know, there is no answer. Mm -hmm. But here you are. And I could anyway. pursue that at great length. But yeah. <laughs> Your choice. Uh, but, but where I will go now, because I referenced it, was this other point in the mm -hmm. book where you have a, an eerie experience. Could you say a little about that? Sure. Yeah. Maybe I should read. Yeah, that would be lovely. This is uh, to set this. Um, uh, my research for Chopsky took me to Poland and to France. Uh, Chopsky lived to be nine, to his 97th year. He only lived in Poland for 23 years. He never went back to Poland after the Second World War. So most of his uh, adult life was spent in Paris. Uh, and so on one of my uh, research trips to Paris, uh, 
I had been there almost for a month at that point. It was my last evening, um, and this is where we are. Let me see if I can find this. Um, Um, I think 58 is where, um, no, 56. Okay. It was my last night in Paris after a month of hard work. I decided to decline a dinner invitation from friends in order to be alone, to allow the stimulation of the previous weeks to flow through me unimpeded. I had been all over the city, in people's homes, at meetings in offices, in libraries and galleries and cafes, crisscrossing a dozen around a small on a regular basis. The time had come for one last sortie. With a book of Chapsky's essays in hand, I set out. It was nearly five o'clock, the end of a beautiful northern European fall afternoon, when the day, suddenly realizing it has stayed too long, quickly prepares to take its leave. When in Paris, I like to watch the gloaming somewhere in sight of the Seine where the city breathes most expansively, where the vast overarching canopy is steep in the same cobalt blue that inspired the ceilings of Saint-Chapelle and Notre-Dame. Making my way towards the river from Odéon, I turned into the Rue Gunigaud, where Chapsky had exhibited his work decades earlier, both at the Gallery Jean Briance and Gallery Jacques Desbrières. I crossed the arched span of the Pont Neuf that connects the left bank to the Ile de la Cité, and slipped into the Rue Henri Robert on my right, a very short lane that leads, in a matter of strides, to Place Dauphine, a cobblestone square where chalky facades of old buildings fan out expansively, and the enclosure's far boundary is delineated by the back of the imposing Palais de Justice. It's a place where I like to sit and read, a protected spot at the very heart of the ancient city, a welcome retreat from the bustle beyond the embrace of its high walls. Settling myself down on a wooden bench beneath young chestnut trees in a park lined with crushed stone, I started in on the next essay in my Chapsky book. I read its first sentence and laughed out loud. In its entirety, the line reads, I crossed the Pont Neuf. The essay goes on to describe a Polish officer in Napoleon's army who was leaving for Egypt from a hotel on the Ile de la Cité, somewhere, I realized, nearby where I happened to be sitting. I read for about 40 minutes or so as the light lingered beautifully in the sky. Then, quite suddenly, the daylight was gone. Streetlights were illuminated. I looked up, ready to move, and my eyes landed on something they hadn't previously registered, a new business, an art gallery whose glowing storefront window projected a warm light into the darkening square. Standing up, feeling the beginnings of hunger, and thinking about which direction I might head for a bite to eat, I walked over for a quick look. In the window, an appealing Corot-like landscape was on display all by itself. I opened the door and entered the gallery, a vaulted limestone room lined with many more paintings. As I moved forward, a few thoughts slowly began to line up in the back of my mind, tremulously, like geese finding their place in chevron flight. I made my way down a long wall of paintings in a state of slight mental distraction passing from one pleasing pastoral image to the next. After I had studied four or five of the small canvases, a gallery attendant appeared and asked me, in a lilting French, whether I was a painter. I nodded. He said, with some pride, that he could usually tell by the way someone looked at pictures. He began to speak about the artist on display. 
Looking past him into the further recesses of the gallery space I'd entered from the Place Dauphine, I discerned a series of rooms extending all the way out towards the Seine, to what I recognized as the riverfront embankment called the Quai de l'Horloge. Vague thoughts, straining for definition, continued to come over me, but I couldn't yet fathom what it was my mind was formulating. Then it hit me. I must be standing in the ground floor space of 39 Quai de l'Horloge, which was once the family home of Daniel Alevi. Dumbfounded, I realized Chapsky had been speaking of Alevi and this very building in the essay I was just reading. For decades, I've known the historical significance of this address and studied the house from its exterior, its handsome river frontage giving directly onto the Seine. But I had never made the connection that the rear of the river-facing structure gave onto Place Dauphine, where I loved to sit and read. I knew that in the, 19, in the 1880s, several times a week, Edgar Degas made his way to this house for a meal with his old friend Ludovic and Louise Alevi and their teenage sons Elie and Danielle. From a memoir I'd read about the misanthropic painter, written by Daniel Alivi when he was an old man, I knew that at one time this house was full of paintings and drawings by Degas and Cezanne and Gauguin. My mind began to shift again, and it dawned on me that yes, of course, this same Daniel Alivi had once been the fixation, the object of desire, of none other than Marcel Proust, a friend from his, from his lycée, who'd made sexual advantages and written him an outrageous letter. One of Proust's first poems was dedicated to young Danielle. Quote, a subtle select fire quickens that soul, that nubile physique with a liveliness exquisite and magical, unquote. I could no longer focus on the, what the congenial fellow from the gallery was saying to me as we wandered together through the space. Degas, Proust, Alevi were swimming in my head. Somehow, incredibly, I made my way unknowingly into a building long ago known to them. A building, of course, known also to Chapsky. I heard myself being asked what kind of painting I was working on. I turned to the gentleman and said, excusez moi, I could only muster the words, c'est un peu bizarre. <laughs> Cocking his head, he regarded me patiently as if he had listened to any number of paintings describing their process in so many words. <laughs> I explained to him that I was currently writing a book about a painter and had been researching and amassing information about him, an unknown Polish painter, a painter, in fact, who had a long friendship with a man who was, I believed, a former resident of this very building. Visibly taken aback, but smiling quizzically, the fellow exclaimed, Chapsky Vuvuladio? <laughs> it was my turn to be taken aback. This was the first time that someone unconnected to my writing project had known the name of the subject of my study, had actually volunteered the name Chapsky upon hearing the two words Polish and painter combined. Seeing my surprise at his response, he smiled broadly. Perhaps I should introduce myself. My name is Alexei Nabokov. This is my gallery. Daniel Alevi was my mother's grandfather. My parents both knew Chapsky well. He's someone I admire immensely, both as a painter and a man. I was speechless, and I get a little verklempt. Um, Alexis Nabokov was the grandson of Nicholas Nabokov, with whom Chapsky and Sergei Nabokov 
used to make the rounds in the 1920s in Paris. Alex's father, Yvon, was Nicholas's son, who was married to Claude, Danielle Alevi's granddaughter. Yvonne and Claude live upstairs, above the gallery where I was trying to get my bearings. In a manner beyond my understanding, I found myself privileged to enter into the confluence of connections I could never have managed to pull off had I tried. Mm-hmm. Ten minutes earlier, sitting on a bench in the streetlights, I was luxuriating in the process, pro, me, luxuriating in the prospect of finding a bite to eat. Instead, by an almost magnetic charge, I'd been pulled into the geographic and sentimental heart of the story I'd been fig- trying to figure out how to tell in a location I've walked past countless times without putting two and two together. As if from the pages of his essay, Chapsky was preparing the way for me to gain access to this private realm, where, even among an embarrassment of noble visitors, his presence managed to leave a lasting impression. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Eric Karpolis and host Michael Lerner. So I'd like to ask you to read one other uh, passage uh, right after or shortly after you, uh, you read uh, the essays Chopsky wrote and that you translated, Lost Time, Lectures on Proust in a Soviet Prison Camp. You go for a walk in the Point Reyes Seashore. Mm-hmm. Could you read that passage where sure. of your walk? <clears throat> this, where the coded steep ravine is mentioned, for those in the know, but otherwise um, most readers would not. Um, actually, that's at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, my initial response to having received this book of lectures on Proust um, was to read it and to be very surprised uh, and then to think, huh, you know, it's a little book. I can translate it. The original language was French. This is significant because Chapsky is a Pole, wrote a great deal, but wrote almost everything in Polish. Mm-hmm. But because of the nature of this book, he was a prisoner in a Soviet camp in 1940. They had no books whatsoever. That's not all they didn't have, but books was among things that they didn't have. Um, and every night in this prison camp, one of the men, one of the officers, would speak to a gathered, a group gathered like this and would speak about something that he knew, something he was passionate about, to raise the morale of the group. They were freezing. This is in, essentially in um, uh, northern Russia. They had very minimal food, and they were doing hard labor. They, they were living in bunks that were lice-infested. I mean, this was a, a miserable situation. Um, and so every night, these extremely well-educated officers would speak about something. They did not speak about Poland. Mm. This is something that's very critical because they knew among them that their political, religious, whatever backgrounds were so diverse that if they started talking about Poland, it would end badly. Mm. So they chose to speak about things that were not related to their nationality. And I think that's very important, and it gives you a context for Maybe later we can talk about Poland today and Chapsky's place in Poland today. Anyway, um, so he gives these lectures and he has to remember Proust. So he read Proust in French and so he remembers him in French. And so in order to give his talks and talk about 
Proust and call forth these passages from the novel, he does it in French. Which, of course, they all spoke. Which, of course, they all spoke. It was yeah. all understood. This, this was not unusual. So, um, and that brings me back. The reason that I could translate them was because the original publication of these lectures, they were originally done in French. Um, uh, the original publication was actually in a Polish translation he made right after the war they were published. It, took, um, it was not until 1987 that the original French lectures were published in French. Mm. And that's what I read and that's what I translated. So, um, who was this man at once so vulnerable and so self-assured, a painter in civilian life, attempting to transcend the oppressive constraints of a degrading Soviet prison to a gathering of his Polish peers, in French, about Proust? A few days later, I picked up Chapsky's book and read it again. Proceeding more slowly and mindfully this time, I discovered new resonances and a powerful subtext that had eluded me on the first encounter. I became preoccupied with it, distracted and slightly agitated. In such circumstances, my default response is to walk. I set off for a favorite trailhead and began to wind my way up a dirt path along a trickling creek, clambering up the side of a steep ridge under the cover of Northern California red redwood, oakwood, sorry, under cover of Northern California redwood, oak, and laurel, familiar with each rise and fall along the rocky way. After half an hour of steady climbing, I paused on a wooden bridge, traversing a ravine as the trail shifts from one slope to the other. The air was fragrant and sweet. Birds were chirping. I could hear the murmur of water coursing over the rocks below. I looked out at a cluster of gnarled pines I often admire from this vantage point, always slightly reconfigured in appearance depending on the time of day and the ever-shifting dappled light. Several long branches arched and bent outward, they are rough but grateful, great, graceful forms, often reminding me of studies Paul Cezanne made in the woods above Chateau Noir, a property just outside Aix-en-Provence where he loved to paint. I became aware suddenly of a literary association attempting to assert itself in that part of my brain where word and image vie for primacy. Mm. I looked down at the fingers of my right hand on the lichen-covered railing of the bridge, then back up at the undulating tree limbs, Unbeckoned, a passage emerged from the second volume of Proust's novel, a scene where the young protagonist, traveling in a horse and carriage along the edge of a wood, spots a stand of trees as he go by, goes by. Three of the trees invade his consciousness. This is a quote from Proust. I could see them plainly, but my mind felt that they were concealing something. And yet, all three of them, as the carriage moved on, I could see coming toward me. Like ghosts, they seem to be appealing to me to take them with me, to bring them back to life. I watched the three trees gradually recede, waving their desperate arms, seeming to say to me, what you fail to learn from us today, you will never know. Mm -hmm. If you allow us to drop back into the hollow of this road from which we sought to raise ourselves up to you, a whole part of yourself which we were bringing to you will vanish forever into thin air. I was as wretched as if I had just lost a friend had died to myself, had broken faith with the dead, or repudiated a god. That's the end of the Proust quote. Finding myself within a Cezanne landscape, surrounded by woods and outcroppings of stone under patches of a violet blue sky, my mind had somehow triggered an involuntary memory from the seminal text of remembering. 
So much was crowding into my head, I didn't know how to prioritize the flood of stimuli. It was almost too much to process. Proust and Cezanne, each representing a formative cornerstone of my sentimental education, were quite suddenly and unexpectedly beginning to interact. Their spirits had long held sway in separate spheres of my creative imagination. Their distinct but equally iconoclastic essences have always proven hard to reconcile. What was I to make of such a conflict of sensibilities? I spotted a list of titles of other books Chapsky had written at the back of his book on Proust. Cézanne et la peinture conscient, Cézanne and conscious painting, was among the titles. At the intersection of these two incompatible modernist visionaries, in an allegiance to both, Josef Chapsky seemed to be waiting patiently for me somewhere up ahead, mm-hmm. as if someone called me, summoned me. All I had to do was find him. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I asked you to read that because um, in preparing for this conversation, I also read at your suggestion uh, Joseph Chopsky's extraordinary book called Inhuman Land, Searching for the Truth in Soviet Russia, 1941-42, with a beautiful introduction by a Yale uh, professor, Timothy Snyder, uh, who, which I liked a lot. That I edited. Excuse me? <laughs> that I edited. Oh, you edited? He asked me to edit, yeah. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. You edited the introduction or the whole book? No, just the introduction. Oh, the introduction is a beautiful introduction, yeah. Um, it's much better now. But <laughs> what struck me was this, um, that um, it was the many times when I saw parallels between the way you write this biography and the way Chopsky wrote. And uh, it was that particular passage where you were, you were describing uh, looking down at your hand on the lichen-covered bridge and then up at the, the trees. And it reminded me of a passage in Chopsky <coughs> where um, he's in some... Um, Russian town trying to find the NKVD headquarters to find out whether all the other, where, what happened to all the other Polish officers who were arrested and we later discover were all killed. Uh, 4,000. 22,000. 22,000 officers and only 400 lived. Yes. And he was one of the 400 yes. that lived. And he couldn't understand why. That, that all happened later. But while he's in this town by the railroad station, he describes seeing a camel uh, hooked to a cart. And he describes the frosting on the camel's, the frozen, uh, you know, sort of moisture on the camel's nose, right? And his book is filled with those kinds of extraordinarily distinct perceptions. Um, And I know many authors do that. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. part of what authors do to lend specificity to a narrative. But what came across to me, and I talked to you about this on our last walk, is that I don't believe 
the depth of your identification with Chomsky is entirely on the surface of anything that you've written about this. And so I wanted to ask you about the depth of that identification. Uh, I wondered if, I, I thought to myself, if I had the time and I had been able to go back and read Paintings and Proust and compare your literary style in Paintings and Proust with your literary style in Almost Nothing, this biography of Chopsky, whether I would discover that there had been an evolution of your literary style that had uh, either consciously or unconsciously been influenced by this immersion in Chopsky. And so I'm, I guess I, I'm going to the heart of my question for you, which is, how deep does this identification with Chopsky go for you? And to what degree is there a, um, a sense of his influence on your process, either with paintings or with uh, writing this uh, definitive biography of him? Um, I will just begin by making a visual reference that uh, I told you about Chapsky being in the camp, giving these lectures in French uh, to his fellow officers. He prepared for that. He created these diagrams uh, in the few scraps of paper that the prisoners had. He essentially mapped out a cosmology of all of Proust. And they're in this book. Um, this is the cover. You can kind of see it's, it's a diagram with words. Um, and inside the book, there are my translations of what they are. Um, so you get the sense of this. What, you know, the, the scribble, you know, the kind of impassioned writing down on paper. And I brought these in um, to show this is part of my research when I was writing the book. Whenever I would come across a passage that I felt um, I knew was going to play a part in my fashioning my understanding of Chapsky, I would write it down on the wall. So immediately I got from Chapsky this idea, and this was completely unconscious on my part, that I would do something. I mean, I just, this is how I figured it out, and it wasn't until not that long after, but when I began to step back and look at these, I thought, oh, you know, there's a relationship here. So it's not entirely, the depth of, of it is, uh, is emphasized by this aspect that it's not conscious. So that indicates to me that it's very deep. Um, and also what, going back to what I said before about being open to something. So you, were, you mentioned my literary style, which I have no idea what that is. I mean, I don't sense that I have a literary, I don't, I write about things. Um, but I, if I thought about having a style, I think I would be completely paralyzed. Uh, and I think that's why I wasn't a writer from the beginning, because I think I was too, um, in much the same way I think that Chapsky was aware that he could never really be a great pianist. I mean, I, because he was too moved by the performances of piano playing that he saw, uh, I felt like I don't think I could be a writer because I, I spent so much time reading um, uh, great writers growing up. And I thought, you know, who am I? You know, what do I? I didn't have anything to say. So 
I will to jump from that to the observation that you made about Chopsky seeing this camel with the frost on his snout. What he and I also, where we are very deeply connected, is that we're both painters mm-hmm. who are writing. And I think that there are not many writers who see the world the way that a painter does. I can't explain to you what that difference is, but it's, it's palpable. I mean, there is the connection, the deep connection, is that there's something about um, ex- experiencing the visual world in a way through your eyes and having to find a balance between your brain and your vision. So that intellectual versus sense-oriented um, information, how you bring those two things together. And um, I, I found um, that he was a great model for me um, because he was so, I think, um, unselfconscious about going back and forth. Um, there was a period of time when he could not paint for the five years of the Second World War when he was a prisoner or he was in the Polish army. And then when peace came, uh, you know, everybody said the end of hostilities in Europe in 1945. Well, that was in Central Europe, but not in Western Europe, but not in Central Europe. I mean, there was still hostilities. You know, Stalin had taken over Poland. There were a lot of things going on. And um, for those 10 years, so that Chapsky then devoted himself to that cause and made that his life. Instead of painting, he worked for the cause of non-communist Polish influence in in Europe. So that 10 years, the whole decade of the 40s, he didn't paint. So then um, the thing that he did have through that entire decade was a sketchbook. So his mind... He was an astonishing, to me, uh, draftsman. They're sloppy, they're messy, but he always had, a, he was never separated from a sketchbook and a pencil or a pen, and he was always drawing. So if he wasn't painting through the 40s, he was drawing and accumulating volumes. At the end of his life, um, he, he had accumulated 297 notebooks, journal notebooks, which are all illustrated. They're full of drawings. Uh, and that represents his uh, his output from the Second World War to, until his death. We don't have all the drawings and notebooks from the first part and paintings from the first part of his life before the Second World War because they were all destroyed in the Warsaw Uprising when the city was bombed by the Nazis and essentially flattened. So it, it's the drawing to me that is really painting to me is is always comes back to drawing and color. And these are things that Chapsky understood. And it's also, um, it's an, almost a template for writing as well. And painters who write tend to be very observational and um, I think uh, intensely visual and mm. saturated with color and uh, relative texture and composition. All the things that you look for in a painter, you also look for in a writer. Uh, and, and that was a very deep, uh, thing. On another entirely different level, um, there is the you know the humanist, the uh, the political, the um, I mean there are so many ways in which Chapsky seems to have resolved issues for how to live his life that I found deeply uh, reassuring and meaningful. Uh, and I've spent seven years now with him and his company, and 
He's an incredible guy. I mean, he's, he's, um, he continues to, uh, to feed me uh, on a certain way, level. Um, I want to address the idea that people almost invariably refer to Chapsky's integrity. He was somebody who, um, because of his situation in life, because he was an aristocrat, um, he was very connected in France with the far right. With the, uh, he knew all the bishops in Paris. He knew all of the, um, essentially the conservative uh, wing. But by temperament, he was of the far left. He was a bohemian. He was an artist. All of his friends came from, you know, whatever background didn't matter. But what they had in common was art. And because of his introduction to various people through various friends, like Danielle Alevi, who I wrote about um, and read about, um, he knew the center of, of the, the French politics. So he knew uh, André uh, Malraux was a friend of his. Charles de Gaulle was a friend of his. Mm. So he was a man who represented in French culture and European culture, the far right, the far left, and the middle. And what made him so worthy of, uh, of um, nurturing was that he had access to all of these key pl players, but he had no sense of personal power. He was not interested in using that to advance himself, but to bring opposite sides together in conversation. So often he was looked upon as a man of integrity for that reason. But what strikes me is that people use that to say, to explain different things, that he was a man of integrity. But I don't think I've ever found or come across an individual um, who lived uh, with integrity on a personal level. He lived? With integrity on a personal level. Mm -hmm. That this was not just something about uh, how he dealt with the rest of the world, but it's how he dealt with himself and how he struggled to uh, always to find something that had meaning for him and um, was true mm -hmm. in some way, that he could completely embrace. Uh, the French philosopher Simone Weil was somebody who was terrifically important to him because she was somebody who battered at his sense of self, at his sense of truth, at his sense of his relationship to God, uh, in his relationship to art. Um, and he engaged with people, many writers, uh, on a, a very deep level. Every morning in bed, he would, he would read something and write his comments in his diary. Um, and so the accumulation of all of these years of notations is really interesting. But um, he was somebody who, uh, he, the identification for me also goes, how do you live a life of integrity? And, um, and there aren't ro many role models for that. And nowadays there are even fewer. Um, so I find in him his, his constant uh, search for meaning to be very, very moving. Do you think in words or images? I think in both. Okay. I mean, it depends upon what I'm thinking about or mm -hmm. what comes across my field of vision. Or, mm -hmm. um, but I am uh, somebody who holds on to images, mm -hmm. um, maybe longer than other people do, and I, I, they help me to uh, often contextualize mm -hmm. words or ideas. 
let's see if we can sketch the principal chapters uh, in Chopsky's life. So as you said, he was, let me, let me try and see what I remember. He's born in Poland that's part of the Tsarist Empire. He, um, he was actually born in Prague. In Prague. In Czechoslovakia. Oh, I'm in sorry. One of, no, in one of his right. mother's family's palaces. Right. Uh, and that was... Yeah. Uh, but, and then uh, he, he grows up on this estate. Then he goes to Moscow to study. St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg to study. Then he's uh, briefly in World War One, right? Yes. Then after World War One, he goes to Paris. Yes, right? he goes back to Poland first. Okay. This is a, a piece of information that mm-hmm. completely threw me. I had no idea that in 1919, mm-hmm. after the First World War was over, those three, as I mentioned, those three empires mm-hmm. no longer existed. And Lenin thought, this is the time, we'll bring communism to, to, to Germany, which is in, dis, in, dis, in defeat. There is enormous upheaval in Germany, you know, that we will spread the communist cause to, to, um, to Western Europe. How do we get to Germany? We go across Poland. We just tramp over Poland to get to Germany. So the Poles, in their new republic form, said, no, I mean, that's, you know, you're not going to do that. And so there became, there evolved what was, is now known as the Soviet-Polish War, mm-hmm. 1919 to 1920. I had never heard of this war. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Chapsky um, had, at this point, in the army, uh, decided that he could not be a soldier, but he would be. An, he wanted to serve in the army as a non-combatant. So that was the, the status that he he took. Um, so that was his experience of the uh, uh, the end of the First World War, and then um, he went after that back to Poland, and then quickly after went to Paris. And in that period, at first, he's kind of a Tolstoyan pacifist, Christian pacifist, isn't he? Very much. Yeah, Uh, which evolves over time. I mean, obviously. So anyway, he goes to Paris. Uh, He uh, becomes part of the expatriate community there. Um, And then uh, how does he get back to Poland before... World War II breaks up. He was in Paris in the 20s um, and uh, became part of a group of young Polish painters who had gone together to, uh, you know, as I explained, Polish painting at that point to them was dead and there was so much going on in Paris. Everybody wanted to be in Paris in the Mm -hmm. 20s. So these 12 Polish painters from the Art Academy in Poland decided they would raise money and get themselves to Paris for six weeks. They're penniless. Penniless, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. There's, you know, but they they had they sold paintings and they they had uh, events. They had dances. They raised whatever they needed to get them to Paris, so they could stay for six weeks. So they get to Paris and they stayed seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a very and Chopsky, among those 12, was really the only one who uh, was fluent in French enough. So he acted as the overseer of the group. He found them lodging. He arranged for food. For, they found a studio space together. He was the kind of the, the key man in this. And he gets entree into French uh, aristocratic social life. He has, you know, he has the, all the Poles at this level who are in this upper echelon mm-hmm. of aristocracy. They have everybody as a cousin to them. 
Right. So you know all of the the high you know the high French aristocracy, their cousins, because right. their great 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 grandmother's sister was married to their you know whatever it is. So the doors are open to them. Um, not that Chapsky is interested in pursuing that, but that is a base that he has. But it, he's more interested in what it makes available to him in terms of meeting interesting people. And that's how he meets somebody like Daniel Alevi, who then introduces him to somebody like Andre Malraux. Uh, um, and um, uh, so that is the period of, of time. So how does he get back to Germany with... To Poland. Uh, to Poland with World War II? Well, he's, he's, they go, this group goes to um, Paris in 19... 1924, yeah. and by 1930-31, mm -hmm. they decide it's time to go home. I get it, okay. And there, there's a lot of uh, interest at home in what's going on with them. And there's the, the other painters who have stayed behind say, come, bring it to us, bring, bring us what you've shown. So they had, an they had an exhibition in Paris at the end of their stay, a big exhibition. Gertrude Stein bought a painting of Chopsky's, um, and they went back. To, to Poland and set up studios around 1931-32. And so then there's a period of about seven years before the start of the Second World War where Chapsky is, for the first time in his life, really working as, as a painter. So then you get the German-Russian pact. Uh, Poland is invaded from both sides by the Soviet Union and Germany. Uh, the Germans want uh, slave laborers. The Russians want to exterminate the officer class. They, uh, they get, he's, he's captured by the Germans, turned over to the Russians. Yes. And uh, unbeknownst to him, everybody except these 400 are slaughtered. Yes. And he spends a good deal of the first part of the war and the first part of uh, this inhuman land searching for uh, the, the officers who... Yes. He later discovers we're all killed. Yes, this is um, known under the general term of the Katyn Massacre. Yeah. This is, um, the, the way that fell out essentially was that while Chapsky was in this prison camp talking about Proust and these guys were suffering, as I said, from malnutrition and, um, and exhaustion and cold, they had no idea that they were actually survivors mm. because they had been put in a separate camp and all the other men that they had been in camps with before had all been murdered. And they were murdered by Stalin's order between the 5th of April, 1940, and the 5th of May, 1940, 22,000 men were killed, one after another, with a bullet to the back of the head. Their bodies were then thrown in mass graves that had been dug, stacked 12 deep, very neatly, covered over, pine trees planted on top, uh, and this happened in three separate locations, uh, three separate camps that the men were in. The officers were in these separate camps. They were taken to a certain spot where they were executed. In one of the camps, one man did 250 executions a night for a month. So that's 7,000-some murders that he, uh, he, he, uh, he, he pulled the, the trigger. Uh, this was Stalin's uh, premier executioner. Uh, before he came to do these executions, he had just killed um, Isaac Babel, the Russian writer, mm -hmm. at Stalin's request. But this is um, a methodology of, of uh, killing that actually is an interesting corollary to the Nazi one, which was happening at the same time. The Nazis did it on an industrial scale. You know, they closed the doors and people died of gas and then they took them away. But to shoot somebody, 
to have to load a gun time after time and shoot some, it's a very, very human uh, issue. Mm. Uh, a, a very um, curious, almost, idea of mass ex- execution. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Eric Karpolis and host Michael Lerner. But this is how it happened. So Chapsky was one of, there were 395 men who were not, who were, who were identified and removed from the, the death lists. They were put in a separate camp. Uh, and Chapsky happened to be one of them. To the end of his life, he did not know why he was one of those. Almost nobody knows the reasoning behind why these 395 men were singled out. Because Chapsky really fit the profile of exactly what the Soviets hated. He was an aristocrat. He was dangerous to their idea of imposing communism on on Poland. We don't know why. Uh, In 1990, when the communism fell, uh, the wall came down, the um, Soviet archives were opened for the first time. And the Soviet record keeping is amazingly uh, good. Every prisoner had been photographed, uh, fingerprinted, the names uh, of his family and the addresses where the families lived were all recorded, uh, what, what train they were sent on to which camp, all of that exists for all of these men. But they kept the information, and in 1990, it for the first time came out. What's curious uh, about the, uh, the way in which the information came out is that this is all... You're getting into very murky territory here. But uh, as I said, in, by May 1940, all of these men were killed. <clears throat> they were buried. The war, we're in the middle of a world war. Nobody cares about 22,000 men, essentially, uh, in the scale of things. Uh, but the Polish army was trying to find all these officers because once Hitler attacked Stalin mm. and the war shifted from Stalin and Hitler being allies to being enemies, Stalin needed more manpower because he had been throwing his immense uh, resources of, of, of human power and they had been, they were in need of this Polish army that they were going to put together. Um, so it's hard to know where to go. Well, let me, let me, sure. so there, suddenly these officers are freed and told we're going to form a Polish army. Yes. And so they go uh, start forming the Polish army, but at a certain point, the general in charge of the Polish army realizes that Stalin doesn't want to get that army to get too strong. They're not providing armaments, they're not providing support. So he manages to talk Stalin into letting them go out of Russia. Yeah, before we get to that part, um, and it's, it's, it's not only that that Stalin wasn't interested in, in, in making this a viable army yeah, right. because he couldn't feed his own troops. Right. I mean, this is a, right. you have to be in that context. Right. And, and always you have to say that these 395 men who, who were in prison and, who, and, and then went out to form the army, they were hugely, um, you know, their lives were, were uh, you, know, you, you can just imagine from how I described it, but if you look at it the bigger context of Soviet Russia, their lives were infinitely better than the average Soviet citizen. Mm. You know, it was not like they were being deprived of food mm-hmm. in the Nazi notion of mm. trying to, uh, to punish. This is, what the, this is how so Nobody had lived. food. Nobody had food. Right. Um, so uh, what happens that Chapsky then, when, when Hitler was attacked 
was attacking Stalin, the general who was put in charge of this new Polish army made Chopsky uh, go and look for these 22,000 other men because nobody knew at that point that they had oh, been that's killed. Right. That's the key. So this is chapter. the key part, so that he spends over a year and a half traveling all through Russia trying to find these men. Nobody has ever heard of any one of them, whereas there's all this information about other people coming in, but these 22 officers. Are, and Stalin and all of the Soviet bureaucracy continue to say, oh, no, they were released. They're mm -hmm. somewhere. They're in Manchuria or they're in Siberia, mm. but they're free. You know, you'll find them. They'll they're not in release. They're in camps, right? Well, at that point, because uh, Stalin had released all of the, the Polish soldiers. Oh, I see. They were freed. Okay. But these men were dead. No, I know that. So that yeah. they, and so um, in 1943, the war is still going on. This yeah. is three years after they've been murdered, almost to the date, three years. Mm. The Germans find the, the mass graves. Mm. They open the mass graves and they say to the world, this is Goebbels completely manipulating this as propaganda because he exposes the bodies of the Katyn graves on the night that the, the night before the, the Nazis are about to, to destroy the Warsaw Ghetto. Yeah. So get public attention on the discovery of 22,000 dead bodies and then, you know, that will eclipse whatever they do. So they, um, the Germans do an investigation, and these bodies that they're turning up are, are the soldiers in their, in their overcoats, with their identity cards, with their rosary beads, with their pipes, with their letters from, and photographs of their family. There's no doubt that, that these were Polish soldiers that were killed by the Russians. But the Russians at that point throw it back at the Germans and say, no, 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 this is not us. This is this, the Nazis who have done this, clearly. And so the world stage then, it, the whole thing becomes um, um, undermined because the Americans and the English don't know who to believe. But actually they do know. They do know that Stalin had these men killed. But for public relations purposes, they can't afford to, to distance themselves from Stalin, who they need at this point to win the war against the Germans. So all of these men, um, from 1943 until 1990, the official Soviet line was that the Germans killed these men. Mm. So you could not be in Russia or in communist Poland and say that these men were killed in 1940 because that indicated they would have been killed by the Germans. So the official line was that these men were all killed in 1941, when where their graves were was under German occupation rather than Soviet occupation. Mm. So this, you know, for 50 years, and Chapsky is the witness to that fact, and he from Paris held the torch for the fact that the Soviets were lying about the, the, the murder of these men. Mm. And that was really his role as um, a witness, a historical witness. And he lived long enough. So 1990, we fast forward to the opening of the Soviet archives. And for the first time, um, it is acknowledged by, uh, by Russia that they were culpable in the deaths of these men. So Chapsky lived that long. And then that brings me up to the rest of the part where they had hoped that they would find why these 395 men were spared. And they didn't. Right. So, 
just because it's easy to get lost in the detail of this. <laughs> so the, the point is that as, that as an officer, he had been asked to go find these missing men. He spends years trying. Uh, he can't find them. Uh, and um, after that, he becomes part of this effort to organize a Polish army, which ends up in Iran, hmm. where this army of starved, exhausted people, but poles streaming in from camps and all over, just at the edge of life, uh, told that it would take at least three years to, to train an army. Within a single year, they become an effective fighting force with up-to-date weapons and tanks and everything else, and they are sent to Italy uh, to participate in some of the key battles in Italy where they distinguish themselves for bravery, but their story can't be told with any dignity because uh, Britain and the United States, the Allies, are too busy being allied with Stalin to acknowledge them. So the Poles have this whole history of having been attacked by both sides. And uh, even at the end, in victory, they're not invited to the victory celebrations. There were... Um... Having, having been unbelievably brave and effective as an army that was brought up. And Chopsky is right in the middle of that in a senior role in that army yes. with great courage. And at the same time, this extraordinary ability to uh, keep his journals, to keep sketching. Uh, in the army in Iran, they set up these schools for the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And the soldiers, uh, the, some of the generals say, why, why educate them? You know, they're, they're just you know, basically cannon fodder. But no, they set up all these schools and the soldiers are studying for their degrees with math and trigonometry books in their pockets as they go into battle in Italy. And then, you know, they, they get their degrees even in the middle of battle. It's an extraordinarily <coughs> stirring story that, uh, you know, I, I have some knowledge of World War II, but my goodness, I certainly didn't understand yeah. this. Yeah. The, um, the, Chapsky was the head of education for the, this new Polish army. Yeah. And so he set all of this up because he knew that the future hope of Poland had to be educated. Uh, and even though many of these men would be killed in battle, they still needed to, uh, those that survived needed. And the follow-up to that is that in the, uh, in the late 40s after the war was over, um, all, all of these soldiers, young men, um, who had studied for their baccalaureate, uh, essentially were living in Paris or in Europe somewhere, but they could no longer, they couldn't gain access to European universities because they had no national identity cards. Mm -hmm. These were really displaced people and you could not go to the Sorbonne, you could not go to the University of London, you could not go to the University of Geneva if you didn't have papers. And so Chapsky's idea was to create what he called a university in exile. Mm -hmm. uh, and that became part of this organization called the Congress for Cultural Freedom. And these are all I mean, the through line of Chapsky in the 20th century is quite amazing. And, you know, we're talking about all this. And remember, he's a painter and a writer.
but he becomes this figure uh, that uh, motivates and, and, and brings together these forces. And essentially, this uh, organization to create a university in exile um, was recognized by the um, Marshall Plan because their idea in America was to rebuild Europe with an anti-communist bent. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly right up their alley. So Chapsky was identified as the person to lead the committee on this university in exile. He did so. And within two years, it became clear that the CIA and all of the money that went into funding all of that uh, couldn't quite yield the neutrality that to the neutrality that Chapsky wanted. Mm -hmm. They had to have American propaganda somehow be part of this. So essentially it was taken away from him. And essentially, even though there was a, a mock university in exile, it was, had nothing to do with Chapsky. And sadly, the, the, this continued that these, and continues today that displaced people are not entitled to enter institutional mm -hmm. situations without identity. There are two key uh, ideas uh, that um, surfaced for me in reading all of this. One uh, is involuntary, me involuntary memory, and the other is uh, clinical detachment. And um, let's just start with involuntary memory, which plays such a key role in Proust and which uh, Chopsky also talks about in his lectures <laughs> at some length. What is involuntary memory and, and how does it figure into Chopsky's story? Um, involuntary memory is a, a concept that was developed really by uh, the French philosopher um, um, whose name has just it's not Bergson. Henri Bergson. Bergson. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he studied. Chapsky studied with Bergson. Chapsky. Well, didn't he go to his lectures? Or, no, that was uh, Proust. Oh, it was Proust. That Proust went, went to Bergson's yeah. lectures. Yeah, yeah. No, it was before yeah. um, Chapsky mm -hmm. was. Uh, so that's the that's the lineage as you right. go from Bergson to Proust to Chapsky. Bergson understood that intuition was somehow much more critical in our development of our, uh, of our knowledge or understanding. It's a kind of an opposition to a more rationalist or mm -hmm. um, scientific mm -hmm. path towards understanding knowledge. He felt that intuition was not understood completely and it played a very large part in the development of our, our, of our minds. And Proust, who attended Bergson's lectures in 1901 in Paris, and in fact, all the major thinkers in Europe went to these. These were sold out lectures at the university in Paris. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he was actually married to Proust's cousin, so they were related by marriage, among mm -hmm. other things. Um, and Proust kind of ran with this idea of intuition. And this is the, the famous Proustian um, icon of the Madeleine, of dipping a, a cookie in herbal tea, tasting it, and being overwhelmed by a, flood of memory. by a memory of, yeah. of the past. So that this is something that is not about the rational mind thinking. This is about the, the sense, sensory um, understanding, that something gets triggered that's beyond uh, in, intelligence. It's not about reason. It's about feeling. And this is 
critical to Chapsky's understand uh, to Proust's understanding of uh, of human life and human behavior, that um, somehow we can't trust our intellects to be true, the way that we can trust our senses to be true. And so Chomsky, in this prisoner of war camp, with no access to books, uh, in this you know completely barren situation, organizes these lectures by these different prisoners, which uh, at first are banned, and uh, but then they hold them secretly, basically. But in the in the final camp, they're allowed to hold them. Correct. Yeah. But he discovers, having immersed himself in Proust and lecturing in Proust, that. Involuntary memory enables him to rediscover a voluminous amount of information about Proust that he didn't know he had. So this idea of involuntary memory becomes central yes. for him in his direct experience yes. of his ability in the camp to reconstruct Proust. Yes, he is trying, he understands the... Um, the form of Proust in, in which you can't force memory to happen. So when the character in Proust is tasting the tea, he's trying too hard to think of what it is, what's happening. What am I thinking of? What am I, you know, his mind takes a moment. And so gradually he learns to hold back and let it surface of its own accord. This is the same experience Chapsky has trying to remember passages from Proust. Mm. He knows that he, if he tries too hard, but then over time, he, they come to him. And he remembers them vir virtually verbatim. It's quite astonishing. And um, he uses that to encourage his fellow prisoners to, uh, to, to, to give themselves over to this, this uh, habit, that they should somehow, this will help them survive if they can keep their lives alive and, and intact internally by remembering, in the very act of remembering. And also to be open to associations that are made, that happen. Um, and my example in my own book is that I just read about being on this hike in the woods and thinking, of, you know, I'm looking at trees and thinking about Cezanne, and all of a sudden this passage from Proust comes to my mind, unbidden. And... Uh, we all have that. We all have that capacity. It's a question of to what degree we allow it to, um, to, to shape our consciousness. So do you now cultivate that in yourself, involuntary memory, in any way? That to me is kind of um, self-sabotaging it. Okay. So no, I mean, I'm, I'm open to it, but yeah. I don't try to cultivate all right. it. I mean, we were talking about meditation, yeah. for instance. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not somebody who can meditate. Mm -hmm. uh, I just find that um, mm -hmm. to, to sit, sit down and say, okay, now I'm, for an hour mm -hmm. I'm going to empty my mind is not something that works for right. me. Right. So this concept, and I'm not sure clinical detachment is the right word, but there is a way in, in which Chopsky in Inhuman Land, and uh, I don't remember if it shows up in the Proust lectures, but he has this... He has this objectivity, and if I'm correct, he associates that objectivity with the objectivity that an artist or a writer needs. Could you say a little about that? There's this sense of, um, there's a passage somewhere 
where he talks about the monstrous objectivity of an artist or something like that. Do you remember any of that? Um, I'm not sure objectivity or detachment are terms that I would necessarily okay. use because they sound somewhat um, maybe clinical to me. Um, but I think as an aesthetic principle, Chapsky believed that um, you have to be open to what you see, to what's in front of your eyes. And that is um, an objectivity that is predicated upon um, vision, you know, that, that you can't con really control. You see so much, and what it is that you focus in on is, um, is uh, happenstance. Or somebody strike, somebody's wearing a purple scarf. Somebody is, you know, um, looking for a lawn at a cafe table. I mean, these are things that he picks. He, didn't, he doesn't go out looking for subjects. They come to him. And I think that's perhaps the, uh, the objective quality that you're talking about, that it's not an attempt to uh, predetermine. I'd have to go back and look for it, but I, what I associate it with is that uh, he talks about when he talks about uh, tendentiousness. I think he talks yes. about writers uh, whose work is destroyed or is made second rate by tendentiousness. That Tolstoy has no tendentiousness up until perhaps his last novel, where it becomes tendentious, and so it's this reaction against tendentiousness in his chapter in Inhuman Land on Germans at the very end. Yes. When he is talking about a trip that he makes to uh, Latin America on a boat and uh, talking with a German friend, and he's wondering whether the inhumanity that the Germans uh, manifested in World War II was specific to the Germans or whether... Uh, uh, whether Pauls could do the same thing or whatever. And at the very, very end, he says, anybody, in effect, who writes off the Germans en bloc as evil uh, does not understand. So what I'm talking about objectivity, and maybe it's the wrong phrase, you talked about his, his search for truth. And for him, even in the experience of having experienced both Soviet and German inhumanity uh, in, in ways that we can't even imagine in the privileged lives that we live. Uh, nonetheless, he is unwilling to write off Germans. He is unwilling to take these, uh, these positions uh, because truth requires and objectivity in that sense requires uh, that he recognize that uh, others might do this and that there are it, it, it isn't, you can't write off Germans on block because yes. of that. yeah. Well, I would say uh, an example of that that gives him that framework uh, to, to, to be open this way is actually, in many ways, the Polish mentality mm -hmm. uh, in which there is a great deal of narrowness of mind and in which there is um, a certain kind of... Uh, um, resistance to being part of a larger community, and that um, that his writing in um, in the 1960s about Germany 
um, at a time when um, Germany was still divided. He, um, he felt that it was impossible because he, he clearly had experienced individual relationships that had meaning for him with Germans. He had an enormously close relationship to, to the Russians. He never was anti-Russian. He was only anti-Soviet. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, the same way if you put that on Germany, he was only anti-fascist, uh, anti-Hitler. Um, and so he, there were too many things that, I mean, he, was, he, he had too large an imagination to see if you, if you deny yourself Germany, you know, you deny yourself Bach and, you know, Thomas Mann and, you know, there's a point at which you can't be tendentious. This is a, a word, tendentiousness, he writes a lot about um, great writers who are trying to make a, a, a point about a cause. And they their art suffers from this emphasis, this need to say, you know, X or Y, mm. that Tolstoy in his late work was so determined to explain what a Christian was, that it destroyed his ability to, to see beyond that. And that is a limitation in an artist. And so he takes that um, kind of uh, uh, mentality and applies it to, to nationality. To, to, was it Proust? I mean, many people probably have said this, but in, in these books, was it Proust or Chopsky who observes that the artist must be solitary? Both. Both. Yeah. And uh, this is not new. To, I mean, Proust right. is not the first. I mean, Montaigne right. and, you know, Diderot, there are a lot of examples of, of, um, of great minds who recognize the, the need for solitary mm -hmm. um, uh, time to be free from uh, social intercourse. Chapsky lived in one room in Paris for 50 years. It was his bedroom, his painting studio, his library. It became the salon where when everybody came and wanted to see Chapsky, they would come to his room. It was a little room um, uh, upstairs in a house in the outskirts of Paris. Um, but it was his, essentially his, um, his, his cell, his monk, like he was like a monk. I mean, he did have people coming and going, but essentially he needed to close that door and, and remain alone. Now, Chopsky is a nationalist hero in Poland. And here comes your book. Uh, Chopsky, for, as a nationalist hero, the, the nationalist Poles want to see him as, uh, you know, an ethnic nationalist. Uh, your book makes very clear, as does In Human Land, that uh, Chopsky uh, had a deep sensibility and sensitivity about all peoples. I mean, he, you know, uh, the, the bohemian dimension of, you know, all sexualities, all peoples, and so on. What impact is your book already having in Poland? And where do you think that's going to go in terms of the debate in Poland over Chapsky as a nationalist hero? Um, it's hard to predict. Mm -hmm. um, there has already been a, quite a bit of pre-public... My, my book is being translated into Polish, and it will appear at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of pre-publication press about it um, by the 
slice of um, Polish intellectuals who want Chapsky to be seen in this overarching framework that I've created, you know, the complexity of the man. Uh, but there is a, a, a faction that claim to own Chapsky that um, are not interested in learning more than his um, basic tenets of being an aristocrat, being a Catholic, and being a war hero. This to them is what makes him a great Pole. Uh, and so Chapsky himself would be mortified to be associated mm -hmm. with this mm -hmm. kind of essentially fundamentalist thinking. Mm -hmm. um, in Poland, uh, I don't know if it's just my way of looking at it, but one of the critical issues is anti-Semitism. I grew up in a home where the, the only thing I knew about Poles was that they were anti-Semitics. Mm -hmm. This is all I heard in the, the circle of friends of my parents where I grew up in New York, that the, the Poles didn't need the Nazis, they killed the Jews on their own volition. Um, Chapsky was somebody who was never anti-Semitic, um, and uh, there's a beautiful memoir written by one of the 400 survivors who was a, a medical doctor, the head of, um, I believe, I don't, it might have radiation at the University of Warsaw. He was somebody very significant who wrote in his book about the horrible conditions that he, as a fellow prisoner, experienced among the Polish officers because he was a Jew, he was ostracized. Mm -hmm. So this is even under these conditions of deprivation and humiliation that the, those Polish officers wanted him, you know, separate. They wouldn't sit at the table with, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and he singles out Chapsky as being above the fray. Mm. He talks a beautiful little scene where he talks about going for a walk with Chapsky in the, in the campgrounds. They were able to, you know, do a certain loop. And he showed, Chapsky showed this doctor a photograph of him with his brothers and sisters who were all over six feet tall, all very thin. Uh, and the, the doctor says it was like a, a menorah. Mm. Mm. Um, so there is unbelievably to me um, still enormous pockets of anti-Semitism in Poland today, though there are no Jews, per se, so to speak. But that, that kind of discourse, anti-Semitic discourse, has been transferred now to homophobic discourse and to anything that is other. Mm. It's the same kind of thing. Um, and this is something that Chapsky would never tolerate. And so he, um, you know, he, what happens with my book will be interesting to see how it gets taken up. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Eric Karpolis and host Michael Lerner. Before we open it up for questions, uh, one final uh, reflection. Uh, you spoke of that. Uh, part of uh, Polish um, uh, culture from which Chapsky came as having the most refined cultural sensibility you've run across, I think. And I thought to myself uh, two things. The, the immediate thing I thought when, I, when you said that is, that's an extraordinary observation on your part because you know a good deal about the levels of refined cultural sensibility uh, of many parts of Europe. And one would wonder, I mean, 
I would think most Europeans would have chosen uh, Germany as the center of European culture before World War II. Um, but the, you know, one could pick France or somewhere else. Um, what is it that causes you to make this fascinating and extraordinary claim that it's that the Polish intellectual cultural sensibility is the most refined that you've seen, knowing as much as you do of European culture? Well, I would not say, uh, I was talking really about to date, as so, opposed to uh, uh, post-pre-war, World War II. I'm, say it again? I'm speaking about to date. Oh, to date. So the sense that the, the people that I have met and, and the... Oh, you mean contemporary? Contemporary. But uh -huh. yeah, that's my sense that right now that the Poles and other Eastern Europeans are really carrying. Oh, that's a different claim. Yes, yeah, a different thank you for clarifying. And it was uh, the Canadian writer, Mavis Gallant, who, uh, who knew Chapsky and who spoke with me about Chapsky, who said, ah, the Poles, that's what we thought Europeans used to be like. Yes, that makes much more sense. That this yeah. is very much about uh, them, their connection and mm -hmm. their, um, their, their actual refinement, whereas contemporary German and French uh, mm -hmm. cultures are somehow not quite as uh, deeply entrenched and open. I think that's way. true. I think that's true. And there are any number of writers, uh, Stempowski, I mean, Gustav Herling, many, many wonderful writers that I've come across, poets. Um, again, primarily not painters, not visual arts, but... Um, uh, Michelski, there are composers who we don't know really, who are part of the canon in Europe but haven't really penetrated to, uh, to these shores. So that's a really fascinating observation. Now that I understand it, it makes sense to me. Uh, but what that means, if that is true, which seems very plausible to me, is that American culture is virtually entirely cut off, not only from Chomsky, but from the entire cultural edifice of contemporary Polish thought. Well, the word refinement doesn't apply to anything American. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's probably. I mean, in a yeah. reductivist kind no, of way. I, I mean, that. I'm talking about, uh, and also in, in American culture is dominated by the marketplace mm -hmm. across the board. Yeah. This is not the case in Eastern Europe and Poland. I mean, not that it's not a part of it, but the prevailing sentiments of, and the ethos of the people that I have met in Poland mm -hmm. um, and had the privilege of, of coming to know, it's as if I was stumbling. You know, I'm somebody who's read a lot. I'm somebody who's fairly what would be passed for cultured or, I mean, I felt completely out of my depth. I mean, these people all speak five, six languages. Um, you know, and it's 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 very very impressive. I went I went I spent a year at Oxford um, when I was young, and um, I always thought that that was interesting because the my fellow classmates were all uh, privileged in the way that this was their their education was something from very young. They had been part of this process, and they knew that they were launched to go somewhere. So it was all part of a thread. There wasn't it wasn't really a merit based from my point of view, mm -hmm. uh, education. But years, several years before that, I had been in India, and I had gone to a, um, essentially a, a preparatory boys' school for Indian boys who were going to go to Oxford and Cambridge. And that is the other place where refinement was enormous. 
because there was a struggle to learn and to be able to have the luxury to use your mind. Um, and so those Indian boys had to have everything. You know, I went to, I was in a, a Shakespeare class in Delhi in 1970, and I felt completely out of depth. Mm. I mean, they had read everything, they knew everything. <laughs> I mean, and so fast forward to, you know, 2012 and my first trip to Poland and I'm meeting these people one after another whose libraries are incredible in six languages and who've read everything and know it. You know. And it's not, it's not uh, for them, it is, um, it's a brotherhood. Mm. Although I guess that word might be sexist at this point. I don't know what you say, but I mean, because it's not, it's, you know, it, it includes uh, uh, women, but it's, it's a kind of, uh, God, these words, fraternity, even that is freighted. But I mean, it's this kind of group of spirits who, uh, who feel like they, they have a responsibility towards culture and participating and, and, and framing it and exporting it as well. Well, as I said to you on our last walk, the level of erudition, um, erudition in uh, your book, uh, Eric Carpel is Almost Nothing, The 20th Century Art and Life of Joseph Chapsky, and also in your uh, introduction to and notes and translation of uh, Lost Time, Lectures on Proust in a Soviet Prison Camp by Joseph Chapsky, which you... Um, which you um, uh, published with uh, the uh, biography are extraordinary. And uh, surely this will be the definitive biography of Chopsky. Um, and when in October you uh, release the, um, the book of his paintings and drawings, um, you really will have brought to life um, a figure of great significance. Um, and uh, it will be fascinating to watch the afterlife of this um, extraordinary piece of work. Already, uh, uh, your books have been reviewed in the Times Literary Su Supplement, the Sunday Times Book Review, Wall Street Journal, the New York Review of Books, Boston Review, and elsewhere. And these are, are, for the most part, deep and thoughtful reviews. So um, just in terms of intellectual history and the cross-currents of intellectual history, uh, this is an extraordinary achievement. I want to open it to questions and comments, and then we'll do a close. Um, questions, yeah. Eric, did uh, Chotsky um, cross paths with Camus? They were friends, certainly. Um, Camus relied on Chapsky for uh, whenever his books were going to be in published in Polish translation. He would uh, send the translations that the publishing house had done to Chapsky for approval or not. Um, he, uh, Camus and Sartre were the reigning philosophers of the time in, in Paris, and they had a falling out. And Chapsky was enormously uh, helpful to, to Camus uh, to uh, create a, an environment for him to feel uh, comfortable. He, um, they weren't close, but they, they recognized each other uh, and, um, and I think shared a lot. Camus came to one of Chapsky's uh, painting exhibition openings and wrote a note to him afterwards and said, you know, 
don't worry that they don't, you know, they, they think you're not part of the movement. You know, don't worry about being in the, in the current trend. He said, you know, you're following a path that, that is true. And so there was that kind of mutual, uh, and, and Chopsky wrote to Camus when the, the thing exploded in the press about Sartre and Camus breaking ranks with each other. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, when I bought your book, the first place I went to is the is paintings. I saw the reproduction. And what grabbed me was the self-portrait that he did in one of the Soviet camps. And then I read the book, and it, and that that self-portrait sort of crystallized something for me about him and about the way he wrote the book. First of all, the suffering that is evident in that self-portrait, and also sort of a sort of a dissociative protection because I mean, how do you survive in a camp of that kind of deprivation? But also, amazingly, the, the aestheticism with which he grapples with a self-portrait in the midst of all of that. And, and there's, a, there's a, an element of transcendence to it as well. And so I was, I was really most intrigued in your book by the thread that you, of, of his aestheticism that you weave throughout this incredible history of the 20th century and the wars. Uh, and somehow that got captured in that particular self-portrait uh, that he did. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested to see more of his work. Mm -hmm. um, I think I write about in the book uh, that this little portrait is, it's quite small and he puts his face in a very tight frame, which is a kind of an homage to uh, Niederlandish portraiture of the 15th, 16th century. He has a cap that he's wearing that he's, it was just like, you might know a famous Van Eyck portrait of a man in a turban. I mean, there are all these references going. You can see in his mind what he's reaching for to sustain himself. Yes, yes that's um, I thought you might mention Vida's film, Katin. I assume it's available on Netflix, but it's an eye-opener. Yes. Um, uh, the Polish director, Andrzej Vida, um, made a film after the fall of communism. I think it came out in 2007 called Katin. Uh, and it tells the story of these officers uh, in a fairly narrow perspective. Um, but it's very, very moving, very um, shocking, even with all the violence we are used to. Um, and Chapsky was his consultant, was one of his consultants. Hmm. Mm. Andrzej Vida, who made the film, lost, his father was killed at, at Katyn. Mm. So this was a story he had always wanted to tell. And um, he did remarkable research uh, he found uh, all of these boxes of 
post-war materials that had got shipped to Warsaw with the army, and included in them were all of the remains from the bodies that were dug up. And, and what I mentioned, the rosary beads and, and the, the, uh, the, the pipes and the chess sets and the photo, he documented them and photographed them all. And it's hugely powerful. I think they're more powerful maybe than them. The movie is, has a sentimental side. To, you know, and it creates a story of a, a, a wife and, and daughter who are trying to find their husband, who is, you know, all of that. Um, but these photographs are so powerful. Uh, and, you know, you've all, we've all seen photographs of the shoes of Jews going into the mm -hmm. gas chambers, you know, the mountains of shoes. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of, uh, of sense that these men were... You know. So I encourage you to see th that book. I think the library may have a Yeah, I'm sure the library, or you can get it from library. You're a nun, Lexi. Um, the book that was written in French by these um, soldiers, um, how soon was it translated into Polish for the general public there? You mean the, uh, the lectures on Proust that he gave? No, I'm talking about what was written when they were in the, in the prison camps. They didn't write. They gave talks to one another. Oh, I see. Um, in French. Well, Chapsky did because his subject was French, oh. but otherwise the officers were giving lectures in Polish oh, okay. to each I, other. I, I, I Sorry, maybe I didn't make it clear. Polish. Yeah, um, the talks that Chapsky gave in French were um, transcribed by two of the prisoners in the French. Mm -hmm. They then, in 1947, were translated into Polish and printed in Polish after the war. Nobody was interested in a Pol in France. Nobody was interested in what a Polish man thought about Proust, and so it wasn't until much later that those things. But it's also an interesting thing because when Proust when Proust died in 1922, we're talking now about 1940 when Chapsky is giving these talks. In those intervening years, Proust's reputation went very high and then completely dropped, and it was. Well, maybe just by example, I can't give him all the credit, but Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about Proust and said, you know, this is bad psychology. Mm. You know, he was a bourgeois. And that essentially the French just turned <laughs> off Proust. And Ch here's Chapsky in this backwater in, in northern Russia giving these very detailed talks about Proust and elevating his accomplishment and, and spreading the word. He was, you know, he was virtually alone in 1940s as somebody, as a literary mentality or critic who was engaging with Proust. So the French, it took them a long time, probably not until I would say the 1980s even, that they then really owned Proust again and made him you know, one of them, which means of course that nobody else can write about him. <laughs> but that was the other thing about my, my book paintings in Proust is, is a huge seller in, in France and it's a, a big, tribute that they would let an American, you know, book penetrate their, their thinking about this that much. Lexi. That's just really such a remarkable and engaging book, Eric. I just want to congratulate you on that and, and just ask if you're planning to go to Poland at all, are you going to be part of this publication? Are you going to do any talks like this? Yeah, I'm going the first week in April. Um, I'll be in three cities. Um, I have some very impressive people who I'll be in conversation with who are you know, part of that world. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. Questions from over here? I, you're not in my eye view, so yeah. Uh, 
While he was um, an artist in Paris, was he influenced by the artists at the time, or was he stayed with his own people, or was he influenced by? He was very influenced, uh, especially by uh, Bonnard, who he knew personally through his own teacher. Um, but that idea of uh, the saturation of color that Bonnard uses and Matisse, those were very critical for him, learning experiences that he came across in Paris. Um, the 12 Polish painters that went with him and they spent seven years in Paris, almost all of them very quickly developed a style and a relationship to painting. Chapsky struggled for a very long time in the 20s to find his, his own voice. So um, he was influenced, definitely, but, but it became almost um, uh, knowledge that he stored up that he couldn't make active use of until much later. So he made paintings. There are a lot of paintings. And the paintings you can see, this is like Cezanne, this is like Matisse, this is like, you know, which is true of most young painters that they, they do that. But he, he knew that if he was going to paint, he had to get out of Poland and, and had to go to Paris where it was all happening. He, um, he lived, the, the studio that these Polish students rented was about three or four blocks away from a studio that Giacometti at the same time set up. And there was a lot of overlap there. And Giacometti, I think, is um, somebody who uh, maybe um, temperamentally and spiritually was very close to Chapsky. Not necessarily, you wouldn't see it identified in his work uh, side by side, but Giacometti was a very important person to him that he came across at that time. Let me ask a final question. Um, or was there another? Yeah. Oh, Jan, I didn't see you. Please. Having immersed yourself in all the drawings and also the paintings, do you see, is there a through line among them? I mean, his drawing was uninterrupted. His drawing, um, his drawing was singular uh, in that it wasn't like anybody else's and it was very impulsive and very much his own and he owned it. His painting he struggled with a great deal because he felt he didn't have a true voice or a style. At a certain point, I think in the late 60s and early 70s, the, uh, the process by which he made paintings began to change. So it used to be he would do a sketch in his sketchbook, bring it to the studio and make a painting from the sketch. And I would say seven times out of 10, the life that's in the drawing disappeared from the painting. There was some element that didn't make the transfer. And it's clear to understand it when you're looking at it. It's the fact that the, the impulse is all there at the beginning. You can't repeat the impulse. And so in the 60s, late 60s and 70s, he begins to paint directly, in, in which, is, which is informed by his line, by his drawing. So that's, I think, um, how I would categorize it. But at the end of his life, when he no longer can... I mean, he paints until it's unbelievable what he paints at the end. He had a great, great late flowering. So when he's in his late 80s, he begins to do what I think are some of the best paintings he's ever done. But he's beginning to lose his vision. Mm -hmm. So this has happened. This happens with Degas. Happens with Monet. You know, it's not unusual in, in the life, a long span of an artist's career, that something emerges at the end that has to do with uh, ocular uh, experience. Uh, so he does great paintings, and then it becomes, and he has in his studio, he has these big envelopes with the word green, cobalt blue. I mean, he can't see the tube of paint, so he needs to know what's 
so he uses the envelope with the big script that says yellow, and he's working. And then eventually, what happens is he can't even he can't even do that. And I talk about it in the book or in the monograph. I talk about the fact that it's almost as if he's, his brush is seeing for him. You know, he's he's finding the color, he's putting it down. Somehow these great paintings, and then he goes beyond that, and then he's reduced just to again to to line to drawing. And he's nearly blind, and he's making marks in his page, in his diary, just for that contact, for that habit, to, you know, to be in touch. That's how he keeps connected to the world, is through the end of the pencil. Final question for you. Um, what brought you to Chopsky was Proust. And what you did before you did uh, this these three books, the last of which is coming out soon, um, is uh, you wrote this also very extraordinary book, uh, Paintings in Proust. Um, I don't think I've ever asked you or ever known how Proust entered your life and what, um, what Proust essentially has meant for you in your own development and evolution. We don't have enough time. <laughs> no, but you can get me a you can give me a start. Um, I will start by saying when I was um, I, I mentioned that I had been in India. I was an exchange student in high school. I lived in India. Mm -hmm. I, I came back from India for my last year of high school uh, in New York, suburban New York, um, and I was uh, very unhappy as right on schedule as a you know sixteen or seventeen year old. Boy, I mean, I was very political. I was working with civil rights and against the war, and school was just a complete waste of my time. I resented having to go. But I had a French teacher who I had studied with for you know two or three years, who was actually a Belgian uh, man who had just come to America. He had just finished his PhD, and he was hoping to get a college job. And in the meantime, in the interim, he was teaching in this high school that I was at. And he, uh, he, he spotted me as a, a reader. Um, I always had something I was reading, and we would talk, and he knew I had a, a certain uh, hunger and a curiosity. And as a senior in high school in this school, you could do, because this was the time when they were trying to make education relevant, uh, you could have a, a, what they called a senior seminar high school senior seminar, so that one period out of your week you could meet one-on-one -on -one with a teacher if they, if they agreed or you agreed, whatever. And so he said, let's read Proust. Because mm -hmm. uh, he knew I wouldn't be put off by the length or the you know, difficulty. In fact, I would be hungry for it. And he was right. Uh, and so uh, every week of that year, uh, once a week, we would go through, it was Swan's Way is what we went through. So we did uh, in English and in French, because my French wasn't really up to reading it, but I wanted to have that. And I know that this was what saved him, mm. just as it saved me. So um, since then, I have read the entire uh, seven volumes once a decade. So um, when I turned 50, I was given, I was asked to comment on a new translation of course that Viking Press was putting out. The great uh, French uh, scholar Richard Howard, who's a poet and a writer and a, a, a really remarkable spirit, 
um, had for 15 years been working on a new translation of Proust. And year 15, he put his pen down and he said, I'm out of here. You know, I want my life back. Mm. I want my creative life back. So he had not finished. So he had a contract with, with Viking and it you know, was null and void. So very quickly, Viking came up with the idea that we'll put out a new Proust, but we will have each volume translated by a different person. So we can get seven people, each can do a separate volume. And I was asked to comment on the quality of the translations. And that was when I started that. And actually, the first volume is the Lydia Davis volume, which is the book that I often recommend if people want to read Proust, that they start with Lydia Davis's translation and then go back to the uh, Moncrief Kilmartin, which is the standard English translation. Anyway, um, when I started the Lydia Davis, I thought, this is the time I'm going to do it, because every time I've read this book, I've come across paintings that I have no idea if they're real paintings. I don't know who mm. these people are. Are they fictional? Is it real? So every time I came across a painting or a painter, I made a note of it. I put a slip of paper in the book. And when I was done, I had over 300 slips of paper. Mm. And I thought, if I don't know who these people are, most people are not going to know. So I went about trying to identify all the paintings. And I made a, a very... Um, Quickly, I made a maquette of a book that I thought could be made from this, where you have the painting itself opposite the quote from Proust. Um, and, you know, I, did tw I chose 12 examples, and I submitted it to four mm -hmm. publishing houses that I thought had the capacity to do this kind of thing, and I had a contract in a matter of weeks, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that was how that happened, uh, that that book. Let me just try one more time. What has he meant to you? Yeah. Proust, um, it's as if you have a different lens on the world. You know, you put glasses on for history, you put glasses on for, you know, whatever it is, you see the world in a certain way. And the Proustian lens is just... I would think it would be like some kind of drug trip, mm -hmm. which, you know, I don't really like that association, but it's, the, it's the, the expanded mind, what happens without taking drugs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but through his enormously um, observant and intelligent and funny uh, frame for the world, how he sees it, has meant so much to me because... It's, it's like having a private reference to, to experience in your life that constantly has uh, an, uh, a link with a character or a situation or some kind of um, aesthetic experience that Proust has written about. I mean, it's all there. It is all there about life and about um, and being alive in all its complexities. Um, from great, great joy to enormous sadness, sadness to, um, to you know, you're holding a book that is essentially a transubstantiation of his life. Mm. You know, and it's a responsibility, but it's also a huge reward. Mm. I'll close with a personal memory that came to me this morning as I was uh, reading Lost Times, lectures on Proust Soviet prison camp, Chapsky's uh, lectures that you translated. I remembered that my mother at the age of 80 
living in a Quaker retirement community called Kendall Crosslands outside of Wilmington, would take the train to New York, which was her real home, uh, once every two weeks because she had a friend and together they were reading all of Proust in French. Um, and, um, well, that's a kind of involuntary memory. Exactly. You had this morning. Exactly, I did. And I hadn't thought of it. <coughs> Eric Karpelis, author of Almost Nothing, the 20th Century Art and Life of Josef Chopsky, uh, of uh, a, a, the translator of Lost Time, Lectures on Proust in a Soviet Prison Camp, both from New York Review of Books, publishers, uh, uh, author of Paintings in Proust, 2008, and uh, translator of Proust's Overcoat, and the forthcoming uh, Josef Chopsky, An Apprenticeship of Looking from Thames Hudson. It's coming out in October. Uh, thank you deeply for being back with us at the New School. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Eric Karpelis and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>